Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Euronerves. We meet every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time. Hey, if you're joining us on LinkedIn, YouTube, or Facebook, welcome to the show. For our YouTube subscribers, be sure to hit that subscribe button so we can get an extra count on that. If this is your first time joining us here on Euronurse, be sure to check out our website at euronurse.com. This is the best place to go to find out more about the show. And also the best place to watch all of our past episodes. And we're up to 48 of those episodes, so be sure to check us out. And then you can talk to us anytime you want through our comment box, that little box right there. No matter how you're watching us, put your comments in the comment box. We're always glad to answer your questions. This week, we got a really great show. I have Suzanne Qualich and Todd Thompson joining us. And we're going to be talking about the white paper that was just put out by Suna on suprapubic catheters. So let's go ahead and bring our experts into the show right now. Hey, welcome, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, I'm just going to start off by an introduction. I'm Vic Sinise, and I'm the host of the show. Uh, I've been involved in urology for the past 40 years. And as I always like to say, I'm just paying it back or paying it forward, however you want to put it, uh, by bringing out these great shows. And always glad to have uh, the experts here for you to talk to. So um, I had a favorite story since we're talking about uh, suprapubic tubes. I had a patient a while back that had a... Uh, suprapubic catheter because he had a banged up urethra they couldn't get anything through it and it really bothered him to have to walk around with a bag so i told him hey you know i was at a meeting i said they got these little little devices little caps you can plug the end of the mm-hmm. catheter with gave him a catheter plug for it well this guy was pleased as could be so he had done perfectly with his suprapubic catheter with the plug and he just voided like normal and actually, somebody had, had talked about this at one of our uh, discussions about how that the more is like the normal flushing action of the bladder where it fills and empties, fills and empties. But anyway, he was pleased by uh, being able to have the freedom of almost living a normal life with that. So that's my favorite story. I'm going to bring in our rest of our panel here. And let's start here with uh, Andrea. Let's have you go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Andrea Strong. I'm a nurse practitioner in urology in Wisconsin. I've been working in urology for a little while, since 2010. I worked as a nurse for a long time. I've done inpatient, outpatient, telephone triage, catheters. I mean, you name it. I've dabbled in a little bit of everything as it relates to urology. I'm certified as a urology nurse, and I'm also the educational director for the Chicago chapter of and I look forward to Suna today. Thank you. All right. Welcome. Hey, John, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. I'm a private practice urologist in Gilbert, Arizona, who is paying it forward by sharing my experience in the business of medicine to benefit my colleagues. You see, as an immigrant, I started with nothing, and I've been so blessed to be currently living beyond the American dream. So now I'm more worried about legacy than currency. In that same vein, I want to encourage all of the watching audience to consider being on this panel so that you can leave a legacy as well. Back to you, Vic. Yeah, what a fun place to hang out. All right, I'm going to switch it over to Todd. Uh, Go ahead and tell us a little about yourself. 
Uh, good morning. I'm Todd, and I'm a nurse in Tucson, Arizona. I've been nursing for about 25 or 30 years. And actually, I specialize in outpatient home uh, management of urological conditions and complex patients, not just urology. Uh, I'm the guy who gets the schizophrenic with a suprapubic catheter or the, the homeless guy who's got to do intermittent catheterization or those type of things. So I'm actually very interested in uh, the complexity of uh, the human being, not just the urologic condition. Uh, it's hard to kind of put all these things together sometimes with patients and make sure that they're adherent and doing what they need to do despite all the other challenges they have in their life. Yeah, absolutely. All right, great. And Suzanne, I brought you in last because I'm going to switch you over to the slides after you're done introducing yourself. <laughs> so I, yeah. so uh, I have been in urology since 1999, and I used to always introduce myself as accidentally in urology, but I don't think I can say that anymore after 20, whatever, <laughs> 23 years. Um, and I, uh, I like Dr. Lynn's point about legacy um, a lot uh, in the sense of I've really felt that uh, part of my role has been to to get all this stuff uh, out there to people so that we can really argue that urology is a specialty for nursing um, and that we do a lot of special things that other people don't want to do or don't want to take on. And so have really worked to get some of that information um, published, to get it out there, or to do presentations like this, uh, to be able to, to say urology is not that scary. It really isn't. It's pretty cool like everything else. Yeah. And I almost say it's fun. I think it's one of the few things you can do in medicine is fun. Yeah. And, and people who uh, I've always said, you can kind of guess by, by personality, like what specialty folks are in. And uh, in my mind, at least urology is, is regular people. Um, you know, they're the people that you would want to have over for a barbecue, you know, so. Yeah. Absolutely. We found that even with all the panelists that have been coming through on the show for almost a year now. You know, it's people you want to hang out with. It's just, you're, you're like, it's another new friend. Yeah. So, absolutely. All right. Yeah, that's a good reason to go to our conferences because uh, we do a lot of partying at our conference. <laughs> Todd, you're not supposed oh. to share that. Oh, we can share those secrets. It's, it's a great place to, to socialize. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of conferences, that's a perfect segue to talk about the 2023 Urologic Conference being put, out, put on by SUNA. This year will be it will be held at the Arizona Grand Resort Spa right here in Phoenix, Arizona, on October 26th and 29th. They have a good lineup of presenters, and also make sure you check out the exhibitors and the water park in oh, there's October. A water park. Yeah, there's a water park there. Oh. Yep. Uh, yeah. So All Todd right. and John are both from Arizona, so it's, mm. it's your your neighborhood, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Great. All right, I'm going to bring up our slides here. So let's bring those in. And let's yeah. see. I'm just going to let you then go. take it over for here. Wow. All right. All right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, good morning, everybody. And uh, we really appreciate you spending your Saturday morning, although I would argue that this is held every 10 o'clock, every, every Saturday at 10 o'clock Michigan time, as opposed to Chicago time. So we, we need to get that clarified. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, so Suna um, approached a group of us and really put out a call uh, to, to try and make some sort of a statement about superpubic catheters. Um, we all 
are familiar with super prepaid catheters, perhaps some of us, you know, from our daily practice, but there really isn't a, a good evidence base or good go-to resources for uh, for super prepaid catheter care. So Suna decided it was time for a white paper. Um, oh, I do have control. Good. Um, and this is the the actual, you know, how it appeared in the journal, just to give you an idea um, of the uh, the range of folks who were participated in this. So it's. Um, what really fundamentally drove this? Well, there, uh, this white paper offers an opinion regarding practice recommendations. And as I said, this was out of the idea that there really is no go-to resource. Um, there are some people who make, you know, including WOCN, including the European Nursing Organization, including Vaughn, the British Nurses Association that have some statements relative to this, but none of them are really high level um, practice uh, recommendations or, or white papers like, like we've created here. Um, part of the issue really is that the um, guidelines that are out there from organizations like the CDC, from the Infectious Disease Organization, lump all catheters together. And we all know from our practices, all catheters are not the same. So there is some, there are some differences and some differences in considerations with patients who have uh, indwelling suprapubic catheters. Fundamentally, the nursing management um, is also very vague. That acute phase, so right after um, insertion, is really inconsistent. There's not a lot, believe me, we looked, and there really isn't a lot out there to guide practice. And the the things that are out there to guide practice or that recommend practice really are not evidence-based guidelines. They're sort of copy and paste guidelines that have just been done because someone wrote them down at some point in the past and they've just been carried forward. There's little research to guide this and, and um, little research for, um, for definitely for that acute phase. And, and for our purposes, we define for the white paper that acute phase, really that first three to four months after insertion. So not a lot of, not a lot of guidance that we can offer you. Furthermore, there's no consensus on who should be doing that first catheter change when that first catheter change should happen, and how do we do that first change? Should it be aseptic? Should it be by yourself? Should you have a partner in changing that to make sure that that tract doesn't close? None of the nursing literature or even the physician literature, quite frankly, really offers good, clear guidance on that. Furthermore, when we really got into this, there is not a lot of U.S. literature. So there's a little bit more literature, particularly out of the British nurses uh, who have addressed this a little bit more completely than we have here, but it was in partnership with the British urology surgeons. So again, not, not a pure urology nursing database. But the important piece, pieces here are that there is um, limited guidance on how to assess for complications or how to assess for, um, like Todd kind of alluded to, patients who have some really complicating issues and an SP tube. So the, the, the guidance for us on this is really not, not, um, not really good and not evidence-based, which is what we all strive for. Furthermore, when we got into this a lot, there really wasn't, uh, there, nobody was, was making statements about who or what sort of training should be involved relative to changing that suprapubic catheter. And we all know that as more and more care moves outside the hospital, and movement, that issue of who is changing the catheters and how they are trained becomes more and more important. 
And again, we're left without any kind of best practice recommendations in that context. This moves us right into the idea of licensed personnel. Do we seek licensed personnel to be doing this? We all know that in, in a variety of different, uh, different contexts, there are different levels of training and different levels of licensure that may be caring for these patients who have suprapubic catheters. And it brings us back to this idea again, and I really want to drive this point home, is that in the eyes of a lot of the guidelines that are out there, full indwelling Foley catheters, urinary catheters, are seen the same way or viewed in the same context as the suprapubic catheter. So we have to take some time to kind of extrapolate and pull from the guidelines for Foley catheter care what we can for suprapubic catheter care. And that's really what this white paper was about. We can find in many nursing textbooks some detailed step-by-step -step guidelines for changing the suprapubic catheter, so that's not an issue. Um, but the evidence-based guideline detailing these unique differences really is lacking, and it's really not there. And so that's why Suna looked at this and said, hey, it's time for us to really put a statement out there about this. Um, to circle back around to organizational, um, organizational factors that are influencing, influencing this, the CDC itself um, ha addresses suprapubic catheters kind of in passing in its um, Foley guideline, uh, in its Foley guidelines um, and recommend aseptic technique. And we'll come back to that because I know that's, that's one of Todd's favorite topics. Existing evidence-based opinion from the CDC and from the Infectious Disease Society of America don't pull out suprapubic catheters. Again, so the guidelines that we have and any evidence base that we have is really extrapolated um, or taken off from what we know about Foley catheters and what's out there about Foley catheters. Who changes the suprapubic catheter? There's no guidance in, liter in the literature. Obviously, this, uh, this shows up in nursing textbooks, again, with kind of step-by-step -step guidance. Um, in a med medical assistance uh, textbooks that are out there, the focus is on how to assist for changing this. Um, so again, uh, scope for medical assistance or certified nursing assistance is going to be different. But the, pro the bigger problem is that um, relative th to the State Nurse Practice Acts, the, the wiggle room in, in, in uh, regards to delegation for procedures like suprapubic catheter changes um, is really uh, widely variable among the 50 states. And if you go back and, and you can access or you have more interest in this and you pull the suprapubic um, paper that I showed you, um, we do mention, we do have an appendix in there that talks about some of the selected differences among different states, um, including Michigan, which is is pretty abysmal in terms of its Nurse Practice Act. So we had, we're su we're suffering from this lack of consistency. And so as we move this forward, it, I think the discussion will be really interesting to hear what your individual, um, what your facilities do, and what your individual experiences have been relative to suprapubic catheters in your environment. So we come around now to what what did this consensus group what did what did we come up with as some recommendations? We, it's broken down into three different uh, three different areas. The first one being education, and we really feel that all registered nurse staff, regardless of where they are, um, really should be trained to change superpubic catheters. Um, 
you know, this is a hot button topic for some places. Um, certainly, I, I, Todd and I were talking and, and some of our, our residents and fellows that we have at Michigan who've come to us from other, from other facilities are frustrated sometimes because our facility has some very clear rules about who's supposed to be doing the super pubic catheter change. And facilities that they may have been done their residencies at may have had different rules. And so they're, they're confused when they come to Michigan because our rules are different. Um, however, SUNA um, really feels that registered nurses, regardless of environment, should be trained to change the super pubic catheter. That's certainly within the RN scope. Additional clinical personnel can be trained to change suprapubic catheters based on practice acts and facility guidelines. That just makes sense. It's going to be very facility dependent in that context. Facilities should institute and maintain competencies to make sure that their staff is appropriately changed relative to suprapubic catheter care. And ultimately, ensuring the catheter is in the proper place. Uh, in the bladder and not uh, not curled around back into the urethra is really the most important step when changing the suprapubic catheter. Again, this white paper was not designed to provide step-by-step -step, uh, recommendations for how to change how to change the suprapubic catheter because you can find those um, relatively easily. But we really felt the first or the most important step is really making sure it's in the right place. Technique was the second category. Uh, hand hygiene uh, is important when changing suprapubic catheter or anything else, and uh, comply with the universal protocol to time out to verify the correct patient site and procedure when changing the suprapubic catheter. Again, that goes back to the idea of just making sure that you have protocols that guide guide these things, regardless of where you work. Um, further technique points recommend that catheter changes in the acute care setting use aseptic or sterile technique. So it's a very clear, um, clear distinction there, acute care hospital setting, so inpatients. Um, in the non-acute care setting, so home or community setting, there is no guidelines for aseptic or sterile versus clean technique. Um, and I'm going to show you an interesting uh, slide from a, a survey that we did as well that kind of kind of gets to why why this statement is in there. So no guidelines for that. Again, we're, we're, this is a white paper, so we're just making some statements um, on behalf of SUNA. Third category is supporting uh, basic care principles, provide developmentally and culturally appropriate patient education based on desire for knowledge, readiness to learn, dexterity, uh, neurologic and psychosocial state. Um, for example, if you are teaching um, a uh, parents, of a child with a suprapubic catheter, that's going to be very different than if you are teaching a um, an adult uh, to do it themselves. So it's really make make that teaching uh, environment context specific. Reinforce the rationale for a suprapubic catheter um, using um, verbal, written, visual modalities uh, appropriate to the adult or to whatever the context is for that for that individual patient. Instruct the patient um, or family or caregiver on the basics of catheter and urinary stoma care. So again, those are going hand in hand because the suprapubic catheter does have a stoma um, and we're looking at uh, basic catheter care. So there's that overlap between those, those two domains. Arrange for an appropriate environment, healthcare team members and equipment to, to assist with suprapubic uh, changes as necessary. This is really a safety issue in this context. Um, if you have someone who is disoriented, who might be fighting the catheter change, you're definitely gonna wanna bring one of your colleagues in to help with that so that everyone is safe. 
Latex catheters should just not be used for, for suprapubic drainage due to the risk of allergic reactions. Um, that's, that at least is a universal point um, that goes along with all of the Foley catheter care, regardless of suprapubic versus uh, indwelling urinary catheter. So that's, um, that's the, the very quick summary of the uh, SUNA white paper. We did um, a parallel or sort of a complementary survey of our members that went along with this. Um, and you can see that there. And so I pulled out some of the, the kind of the more interesting points, I think, that dovetail um, with the, uh, the conversation here. Um, we approached this because as we were going through and preparing for this white paper, we realized really, I mean, I think we all kind of knew there wasn't a lot of information out there. But once we completed the lit review, it was um, really a very stark reminder that there really isn't a lot of information out there. And so we decided to query our expert members to really try and get some information in real time about what was going on in the community uh, in these different settings with, relative to suprapubic catheter care. So this, this uh, survey was uh, restricted to just members of, of SUNA. And the results did support some of the things that we pulled out of the literature. So it was, it was fairly interesting. And I will go through some of the higher points here just in these next couple of slides. Uh, you can see that we had a, a pretty good distribution. And when you're doing surveys like this, particularly about, about practice patterns, you're really looking to try and get a wide geographic uh, sample. And so we did, we did manage to do pretty well in that regard. Uh, so there can be regional practice pattern differences. Timing of the first suprapubic catheter change. Um, I think, uh, I, I know I was relieved, Todd, and I can't, I can't speak for you, but I was relieved to, to see that this lined up with really what we had seen, what we were able to pull from the literature, that nobody was really pulling catheters at two weeks, um, that the majority of our respondents were, were pulling it at four weeks or six weeks, which is really the, the recommendations um, such as they are in the literature. Clean versus uh, sterile technique for suprapubic catheter change. Um, you can see from this the inpatient change. The majority of them are. Um, the majority of them are. Oh boy, my computer's just thinking it's going to restart. Okay. Um, the majority of them uh, inpatient are sterile, which is what we would expect. Um, outpatient. Um, this was um, a little bit surprising to me personally uh, that so many of of our respondents reported uh, sterile. A technique for the outpatient clinic. And then for the change in patient's home, um, it just really was it was a little bit all over the place, I think, depending probably on um, just, uh, just um, what am I trying to say, um, uh, availability of their supplies. Uh, you know, I'm sure some of that, whether or not they could, they could actually obtain sterile supplies through their insurance coverage. The service that changes the suprapubic tubes, again, I think we kind of all knew this, um, but it was interesting to see our respondents. Overwhelmingly, this is done by urology service. So regardless of the context um, of how that suprapubic catheter gets put in, whether it's emergently in the in the, um, in the the emergency room, whether it's part of a OR procedure that has um, maybe not proceeded in the, in the manner as anticipated, um, ultimately urology is a service um, in most cases that's actually changing that SP tube, which circles us back around to this idea that there really is a need for knowledge about how to make sure that our staff is appropriately trained regardless of context to, to make these changes. Um, providers that routinely perform suprapubic catheter changes, um, you can see here that um, 
these are yes, no, or not sure. Lots of APPs are doing this. Lots of um, physicians are doing this, which makes sense, both in terms of, of uh, staff physician or attending physicians and residence fellows. Um, also, a lot of RNs doing this. Now, that associate group um, includes LPNs, uh, includes certified nursing associates, medical assistants, uh, surgical techs, anybody who is um, basically not an RN licensed or, or higher license. So there's a there's a fair mix out there, which I think, again, highlights the idea that there's really no standardization for this and no really good evidence-based guidelines to say what level of education is best suited to do suprapubic catheter changes. And, uh, and that's it. These are the two references for those papers. If you're interested in um, seeking them out, um, they are available really across um, most search engines, um, EBSCO, Google Scholar, and so forth, um, if you're interested in, uh, in pulling those and reading them in detail. Oh, very good. That was great. Let me just bring up uh, Todd's slides here, and we'll continue on with our discussion. Um, one thing I have to say, we talked about a few times with catheters. It's just, it seems like a lot of what leads the practice is dogma. This is how I've always done it and not research, which is. Yeah, yeah I think that's a very good point. Um, you know, Suzanne put together a really good presentation and I'm just going to be a little bit more basic. There was a couple points that I wanted to make that came out in the discussion of uh, this uh, white paper, it was interesting from the perspective that we had uh, people from the uh, university systems, we had inpatient, uh, clinical, outpatient people, and then people like me that kind of specialize in home care. And there was a lot of um, discussion about the differences between those things. One thing that I, I kind of thought was interesting is a lot of nurses in our surveys and papers actually feel like uh, suprapubic catheters might be better at preventing CAUTI or UTIs. Mm. And a lot of nurses um, would tell me that, you know, we're going to put in a suprapubic because it's going to have a less risk of infection. But the evidence really doesn't point to that. The evidence points to it's about the same as a Foley catheter. And personally, I think you know, when you think about the fact that a suprapubic catheter goes directly into the bladder and not through the urethra, I kind of think that it has a higher risk of infection in some ways, but that hasn't always been proven. But, you know, you think about that direct access to the bladder um, isn't going to reduce uh, catheter-associated uh, UTIs and different things like that. So I kind of thought that was an interesting thing that a lot of nurses feel like that. And when I was trained, I was actually told that uh, by the, the nurses who trained me. Uh, but the real advantage, and I'm sure Dr. Lynn can point towards this, is that um, UTI, I mean, that suprapubic catheters are better at preventing your lower urinary tract infections, not, um, I'm, I'm sorry, not lower urinary tract infections, but lower urinary tract trauma. Mm -hmm. But they have the Uh oh, sounds like Tad might have froze there. Yeah. But that's it. So I can uh, jump in for a second. Hopefully, I'm not frozen. Um, we'll have them acutely. Oh, there we go. There we go. Are we back? Yeah, we lost you yeah. for a second. You're good. Oh, okay. No, I was just saying that, you know, that uh, suprapubic catheters are better on the lower urinary tract, but they all have the same kind of complications. And some patients rather prefer them for long-term urinary catheterization. 
Um, but some people don't. I, I kind of get a mixed bag. Um, and interesting also is that I often see different environments where uh, urologists are more likely, certain urologists seem more likely to want to use super pubic catheters than others. And I don't know if that's just their own private practice, but um, some of them like to put them in and some of them don't like to put them in. I don't know how you feel about that, Dr. Lynn, <laughs> but it, 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 it doesn't always seem to be uh, clear to me why this patient got a super pubic and this person didn't. Uh, so uh, that's kind of an interesting point also. Uh, next slide. Uh, let's see here. Or can I advance it? Yep. I think I have to advance it. Okay. There you go. You know, another thing that I thought was interesting is when you get a bunch of people talking from different healthcare settings is that there's a lot of difference between how super pubics are managed, depending on where you work. Uh, one of the kind of things that I'm passionate about is the, the nursing procedures for managing super pubic catheters and putting them in and my technique is that I work kind of in the home care system uh, or in the community. And so I use like a one person technique. I do it all myself. And when I talked about this to some of the people that work outpatient urology, they were actually kind of shocked because they're used to this two person technique where one person pulls it out and the other person puts it right back in with like a two seconds in between, or it's like a rapid swap technique. Um, and they were kind of shocked that people were doing it any other way. And, uh, you know, when you talk about acute hospitals, like Suzanne was saying is, is that often only the urologist or the residents, or maybe a few specially trained nurses are, uh, doing it in the hospital setting. And, you know, a, a med surge floor might be calling for a urologist to come up and change the, a routine change of a super pubic, um, which would in an outpatient setting or be done maybe by a medical assistant or something like that. And, uh, you know, in long-term care, you have a lot of LPNs that are doing it and there's a lot of variation in the time frame. So I do think that there's a lot of room for kind of developing the standardization of how this is done and who can do it and uh, why we're doing it in this particular way. So next slide. So these are actually some discussion points that I wanted to talk about with the panel. Um, and uh, I see them as kind of the issues in nursing care. And one of the first things that was actually kind of a discussion point and I kind of get a little passionate about is that idea of the rapid swap versus the slower swap. When you look at uh, the urological uh, textbooks, that are geared more towards the urologist, they talk a lot about that rapid swap of pulling one out and putting one in, which is what I think you should do on the first change because there's a higher risk of uh, it closing. But I know a lot of nurses that feel like a super pubic catheter is like a bear trap that they just snap shut without a second warning. And I actually like to remove the old catheter and I'm, I'm not talking about the first change, I'm talking about a routine change. And then I can inspect the, the stoma and properly clean the stoma and spend just a little bit of time. I'm not talking, you know, a half an hour or something like that, but minutes and then reinsert the stoma as opposed to these other people that are just boom. And when you look at some of the nursing procedures like Elsevier 
and different things like that, they actually talk about that rapid procedure, which I think is a confusion between uh, short term, I mean, the first catheter change and just routine changes. So any comment about that? Well, I, I would agree. In, I would agree in the real world that uh, these things don't snap shut. That's for sure. I've had patients <laughs> come in the next day. Oh, yeah, I fell out, you know, last night. I've never had a problem putting it in. Um, I have a lot of patients in my practice with suprapubic catheters. I have had them snap shut before, especially oh. on the first try. Um, <laughs> as a nurse practitioner, a lot of the patients come to me for their first suprapubic catheter change. I like to wait until they hit that six-week mark to change it. Make sure a couple tips to stop it from snapping shut because that's that's the worst when that happens. Is the patient usually has to go into cysto. They can try to put it back in, and sometimes they can't, and the patient needs to go back to the operating room to have it replaced. So a few tips that I use are in filling the bladder up with you know at least sixty to one hundred twenty cc's of water, and make sure that the patient is one hundred percent supine. So I have a lot of neurogenic patients with lower urinary tract dysfunction. So they're in wheelchairs and they require lift equipment. It is time intensive. And I know not all facilities have access to lift equipment, but it's mm -hmm. imperative that a patient is laying absolutely supine when you change that catheter, because I find that it's more likely to close down if the patient's not hundred percent supine. But now you're talking about the first change. First change. I am. I am talking about the first change, yeah. And I see, I think that's part of the confusion is there's a lot of, there's more evidence and more procedures talking about that first change than routine catheter change. Yep. Hmm. Any other comments from our panelists? I think the big scare for a lot of people is, as you mentioned, the bear trap analogy that you said you think that you have to take it out and put it back in right away or else the tract will close. That is, as, as mentioned, is more pertinent to that initial catheter change. There's no guideline as to when that first catheter change should take place, but as the white paper stated, four to six weeks typically. And the reason we say six weeks is because for the typical patient, that tract is fairly well established at around six weeks. The, the typical wound healing takes about six weeks. So that's why you wait six weeks before you change out the, the catheter the first time. And when that tract is still relatively fresh, the, the worry is when, once you take it out, and if, like Suzanne said, if the patient is not so much supine, you just don't want the patient to be tensing up the abdominal muscles in the lower abdomen muscles, that may make it more difficult for you to change that suprapubic catheter. As far as the scope of practice, who should be doing this? I think it's a fairly straightforward concept. It's just a tube going from the belly to the bladder. And once the tract is healed and established, you can pretty much have a trained monkey do it. I don't think there's, I don't think you need a, a two-person crew to quickly take it out and put it back in. This is not a Formula One pit stop. Just take your time, do it right, and the patients will do great. So, I'm so, called the train the monkey. 
<laughs> I was going to say, I, I just wanted to sense other, since people will be listening to this in, in, in widely varying environments, is that 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 really is dependent on on state practice acts um, and what is permitted to be delegated to to what level of licensure or or what level of of training. Just to just to, as a word of caution in there, um, do I disagree with the train monkey analogy? I don't know that I, I can <laughs> comment on that fully, uh, knowing Todd the way I do, but. Um, <laughs> But uh, it, it just just to caution folks is that, that a lot of times who train who does that is really going to be facility dependent and just to just to not approach it in too cavalier a fashion because um, I agree extremely, I yeah. right and I and I agree that once the once the tract is fully healed um, it is fairly stable as we've heard but just uh, just I like to put that caution out there and I do tell I would like the audience to make sure you check the white paper out because there is a in the back it shows the different state guidelines as to who was able to change based on different states. That, yeah. That's great. So another thing that actually came up often in the discussion and something that I worked relatively hard at and going through nursing textbooks and procedures is actually uh, the assessment and interventions mm -hmm. for stoma care. There's some talk about like removing the catheter and putting it back in, but you know, how do you assess that this is a, uh, stable stoma that is properly healed? How do you look at problems like irritation of the stoma or um, hypergranulation around the stoma? And what do you do about that? Uh, and the, the kind of decision-making tree of helping nurses deal with any type of uh, nursing level complications that don't have to go to um, a urologist or something that you can handle isn't always clear. Even things like how do you stabilize the, the catheter? All the guidelines are more towards like Foley catheterization, not uh, suprapubic catheterization. You know, do you use a um, strap on the leg? Do you try to put um, some type of uh, stat lock or something on the on the belly or those type of things to keep any pressure off of it. And a lot of nurses are just kind of left to dogma or what they were taught or something like that about how to deal with these things. Um, what do you all think about that issue? What Had, we in, have any more the, in any of the research is, is there anything about as far as um, balloon size that's recommended for super pubic so That's all over the place too. five CC 30 CC. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. As far as catheter <clears throat> securement devices, I always encourage my patient to do that. And it kind of depends on what kind of bag they want to use. Some people want to use the belly bag. Some people want to use a leg bag. Some people want to use the larger nighttime bag. I don't have a strong preference on where they secure it, but that it is secured to them. Because I, so many times you'll see a patient with a suprapubic catheter and it is pulled very taut at the front there. And I always tell them that it's putting constant pressure on the front of, of your bladder, the anterior bladder. I've never seen any catheters erode through, but in theory, yeah. And, and it does just cause some trauma to the tissue. So I think it's important for the securement devices to be used. No, I, I totally agree. And you know, one of my pet peeves is latex catheterization. And I see, um, a lot of people that have a latex catheter and they'll have hypergranulation around their mm -hmm. stoma and I'll uh, change it to a silicone catheterization and that hypergranulation will go away. 
And I actually have wound care nurses that are, are burning off the hypergranulation for years and never thinking about changing the type of catheter and that yeah. this might be a latex sensitivity. That's, that's very interesting. Do, do we have any current research on that or is that anecdotal? So it's not, really, Suzanne, go ahead. I, I was going to say not a lot of the, the resources that we came across, everybody sort of universally recommends against latex catheters at this point. Um, there are so many other options that are out there um, that the, a lot of the, just because the latex allergies can be quite severe and they're difficult to treat. So the, the um, authorities such as they are really recommend against latex catheters in, in pretty much all environments. Yeah. And, you know, latex has been removed from so many parts of our healthcare yeah. system. You don't see G tubes or anything else coming out of a stoma that is a latex. Uh, but for me, it's kind of a trial and error thing. If I see that hypergranulation, I'll switch to a silicone and see what happens. Uh, silicone are not perfect catheters. They have problems. But getting into the changing the size and type of catheter, um, I see it as part of the nursing practice that you know, I'm allowed to go up a size or down a size or change the, the silicone in the state of Arizona. Um, Suzanne will will talk about that. But, you know, there there sometimes is different guidelines about what I as a nurse are allowed to do. And, you know, I've actually had some people look at me shocked when I say I'm going to try this catheter, you know, like, oh, don't you have to get a, a urologist order to do that or you know you got to get a doctor's order to do that but you know we don't do that with foley's right we can right. have a decision the nurse can make a decision about what type of catheter they're going to use i'm going to add some comments that have come in from the audience that i think might be uh, pertinent too so i just want to we've got a big audience out there with and they're chomping at the bit here right. so <laughs> uh raj kari said uh for over granulations he Sense. They recommend silver nitrate sticks. I think that's what yeah. we were talking about earlier, right? Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, but but why not try a, a silicone catheter if it's a latex end? And they just automatically jump the, the silver nitrate when it, it could be a, a, a latex problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Um, there was some issue, or not issue, some comments about the filling the bladder. Our team tends to instill 60 mils of sodium chloride to distend the bladder prior to removal to aid insertion of a new catheter. And that was Gene Dern who said that. Okay. So let me comment a little bit about that. I truly understand why you would do that on the first catheter change. And this is um, something that I think is good on the first catheter change, but it's that complication between the first catheter change and just a routine change. I'm actually against the idea of instilling anything in the bladder because you're introducing, you can, you can irritate the bladder, you can introduce bacteria into the bladder. So when I do just a routine change, I don't infuse. What I'll do is I'll clamp it maybe when I first get to the patient to allow a bit of urine to build up. Uh, but this is a stable stoma. You know, I don't need to worry about it. So that's a big thing about uh, the first change confusion and just a routine change confusion. Right. And it goes, it highlights the idea again, too, is that you hear that in some nursing references, some nursing references don't talk about that. And it just, again, highlights that there's no standardization for this procedure. I think we answered Jean's question there. Yeah. I just want to bring this one up. Karina So. <laughs> wow. What a trooper. <laughs> Good morning. Hi, Karina. Yeah. 1 a.m. We always wondered how, what the time change was. <laughs> 
And we do have a, in suitable cases, we ask patients to drink 500 mils an hour before replacing. So there's a thought from, from the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always try to get them to push a little fluids around the catheter change. And Raj had a comment that sedimentation is a big problem with suprapubic catheters. Is that what you're, would you go with that? Or do you think that's possibly uh, similar to other catheters? I it's think anytime you have a foreign body in a bladder. You know, and it, it mm-hmm. we can get into the uh, bacterial colonization and pH and, and uh, um, you know, why that happens. But I don't think it's significant for suprapubics over a regular catheter. Anyone else have any opinion about that? No, I think you, anytime you have a foreign body in the bladder, you're risking colonization, sedimentation, stone formation. So it's just the fact that you have a foreign body in there. Uh, as far as management of the bag, as Vic said in his story earlier, a suprapubic tube or a Foley catheter plug is an option, yeah. not for everyone, but for those who with dexterity, who is compliant, who are compliant, who are willing to unplug the catheter, drain the bladder on a regular basis, that may be an option. Also, remember the guest that we had on a few weeks ago who talked about cathware that you can get for management of the tubing, whether that is coming from the urethra or the suprapubic site. That's another option. Cathware is available on Amazon, and I will put the link in the comments. Good point. Yeah. All right, great. I just had to throw some of those questions out there for you. Um, I got one more here. I think that um, we were talking about. So Hmm. bulb filling on the Foley balloon, I think we're talking about what recommendations I would you say as from our panelists, what are we recommending for our catheter size balloon? Todd, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I honestly just use the manufacturer's instruction for the catheter that I'm using, which is usually 10 cc's. Um, I don't believe in overfilling a balloon. I think it's important to realize that a a 100% silicone catheter, the balloon will slowly deflate over time. And so you need to kind of be aware of that. Uh, But, you know, I, you know, the balloon... I think when you get put too much fluid into a balloon, you're going to cause bladder spasms. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So I, that's my opinion. Anyone else have any other opinion? I agree. No. Um, I will usually fill to 10 cc's unless the patient does have significant problems with bladder spasms before prescribing an anticholinergic or beta three agonist. I'll first try decreasing the balloon inflation to five cc's. Sometimes that's enough to stop bladder spasms. Yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah, agree, agree. There's one important piece I wanted to bring up, and I think, you know, across the nation, often nurses are taught when doing urethral Foley catheter insertion in males that they need to insert the catheter all the way down to the the Y-hub, all the way down to prevent inflating the balloon in the prostatic urethra. And I have seen some confusion about nurses feeling that they need to do that as well with the suprapubic catheter. Then you run the risk of going into the bladder back down into the male urethra and inflating the balloon in the prostatic urethra. So I think that's important for us to point out when you're doing a suprapubic catheter change, do not insert the catheter all the way to the hub. 
Well, and th this just it highlights another, uh, you know, just another inconsistency that's out there, even in the, the nursing textbooks. Um, some of them, some people, and I know anecdotally, some people will kind of pinch at when they're pulling it out, they pinch where it is um, as a way to measure and then line up the other catheter and kind of do it that way to avoid exactly what you're talking about, kind of trying to force that entire thing in. Um, and there are, there are some people who um, will do it by, by kind of by touch just to see where, where it is. And obviously you're not, you're not inserting the entire catheter, but it just highlights the idea too, that there's all these anecdotal um, tips, uh, tips of the trade, you know, tips and tricks to try and get this, try and get this completed for patients. So just really highlights again, different practice patterns and dogma as we talked about. Yeah. And you kind of have to look at the patient because if you have a really, really obese patient, that, that uh, lower abdominal area might be a lot deeper to get to the bladder versus someone yeah. who is not obese. So got to look at the patient. Yeah. And, you know, I really believe in the idea of being able to measure how far you came out in order to put the same one in. And I go just a little bit more. And um, there's a technique where you just put a little bit of, you infuse a little bit into the balloon. You don't fully inflate it and then you seat it and then you fully, fully put it back in. So you're not risking any type of problems, but that is the key to a, a good suprapubic catheterization is making sure that you don't um, put it in too far, but you put it in far enough. If it, if you see the catheter pop out the urethra, you got a problem. Okay. So. Yep, absolutely. You can actually <laughs> use, you know, the skin markers that they'll usually use to outline, let's say cellulitis. You can use that marker on the Foley catheter. I've seen that done so that you know exactly how far to instill again. And then when you're inflating the balloon, if you do this enough, you can feel if there's too much resistance while inflating that balloon. So if you're, yeah. if it doesn't feel right and you're meeting too much resistance, stop. You're probably in the abdominal wall or perhaps in the prostatic urethra yeah. or female urethra. Right. When I, when I remove the old catheter, I actually will set it down on my field, you know, on, a, on the barrier that I have on a uh, fold in the paper where it came out of the paper. So I can kind of have a visual guide of how far mm -hmm. I need to go in. So it's just where I set it down on the field uh, gives me. So if I lose track of where it should go in, I, I can have that measurement. But I just use that little fold in the field where mm -hmm. I set it down. Someone I'm going to use this as a, excuse me a second. I'm going to use this as a little uh, break off point. Um, I saw the next question coming up was who changes superpubic catheters in your institution? And I thought I'd run through, I've got a list of our attendings who have replied to that. So I want to run through that and then we'll take it up from there. So Susie Swain, RNs and PAs, Dean Dern in our PEDS urology setting, APs and MDs. Janelle Finn, RNs in urogynecology. Hmm. Elizabeth Hernandez, RNs, LPNs, and trained health technicians. Melanie said, RNs, but surgeons perform the first change. Susie Swain says, same thing. Uh, Melanie, we have been discussing the possibility of the urologist using a council tip catheter at the time of placement. Oh. Then the nurse can perform the first change over a wire. We have not initiated that yet. 
So that, if I can just interject with that, the idea, yeah. we, we've talked about nurses changing things over wires that's come up on a, on a number of message boards and environments. And uh, that's that's a scope of practice thing. So you really have to be careful um, about that relative to your state nurse practice act, whether or not nurse can do that. Now, let, me, let me just stop here for a second. I, I don't know how many of you have tried to put a catheter over a wire into the bladder. That wire is really, really thin, number one. And the opening in the council tip catheter is tiny, unless you take a regular catheter and you cut a big hole at the very, very end. To, in, in order for you to change that catheter over a wire, a suprapubic tube, if you're trying to do it through a traditional council tip catheter, it's almost impossible because the wire to, for the wire, for you to guide the wire blindly through that tiny little opening into the bladder and then take out the catheter and put another one in there, that's going to be nearly impossible. And it's a lot more work than it's, it's necessary. Yeah. I, I don't understand why that would be necessary. I mean, I think that um, nurses should be doing routine catheter changes and I have very rarely run into a situation where I've been unable to get the catheter back out. And um you know, I don't do the first change, obviously. I leave that up to the docs. But, you know, I go into people's homes and I've had, you know, situations where I've had dogs humping my leg while I'm trying to do a super pubic catheter change. Uh, well, the guy eats a Big Mac. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I think it's just like uh, Andre was saying, good positioning and, uh making sure that you're, you're doing a good technique. I use a, I actually usually change sterile because that is the way that my facility dictates that I change, not because I think it's evidence-based. And mm -hmm. if you uh, grab the catheter at the very tip and put your up against the stoma, you can inch it in very slowly and kind of push it in if you're getting a little bit of resistance. If you grab it, you know, this far out and you poke at it, the catheter is going to bend um, and silicone are a little bit uh, more rigid than a latex. And so you can use that to your advantage, but there's a lot of just small nursing techniques that you can use that uh, can help you with a little bit of resistance and don't freak out if you get a little resistance. I'm going to have to interject here. Jean mentioned that her team or his team uses 60 cc's of sodium chloride instilling it into the bladder to distend the bladder prior to removal to aid in an insertion of a new catheter. Be very careful. A lot of these patients who require a suprapubic catheter have spinal cord injuries. And mm. if you mm. have a certain level of spinal cord injury, you over distend the bladder, it can cause something called autonomic dysreflexia. And the you can put the patient's health in peril by overly distending the bladder. So anytime you are instilling something in the bladder, make sure that you're doing it safely. And also keep in mind the underlying condition with which the patient is on a suprapubic catheter. So look at the whole patient. It's not just the catheter itself. One of the questions I want to make sure we don't skip is um, the next thing on the slide I also noticed was what's the frequency that's being recommended for catheter, suprapubic catheter changes? I think that's uh, another dogma issue, but is there anything the evidence supporting? And I know, Todd, you've got a lot of uh, thoughts about that, right? I do have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, you know, the reason why a lot of people change catheters or a lot of institutions change catheters every four weeks 
is based on money, to be honest with you. Medicare allows billing of a catheter care every four weeks. And that just kind of turned into the standard based on a Medicare billing requirement. But the truth is, is that um, hydrophilic and silicone catheters by manufacturer's instructions are good for up to 12 weeks. The more often you change a catheter, the more often you're risking uh, trauma and you're risking an increase of infection by evidence. So why are we doing it every four weeks? Um, and I just think it's ridiculous. You know, in, in my practice doing home visits, I actually change about every eight weeks, plus or minus. I have some patients that are up to 12 weeks and it is, you know, um, based on the patient, to be honest with you. Some people do need a little often, some people prefer, and a lot of nurses are uncomfortable with the idea of making that judgment call about how long you go. And some doctors are actually um, very resistant to that. They want that order that says every four weeks mm. or six weeks. And, mm. and it, it's hard to be real specific about that from a patient care perspective. Um, and that's why I like to cut open the catheter because I can see how clogged it is. And so if I cut it open and it's six weeks old and it is perfectly clear, I know it's going to be good. And then I can go a little longer. But no, I don't have very much opinion about this. Yeah, I, 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 I like that technique. Go ahead, I think Andrea. it depends on the patient. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have had some patients who fail to follow up and have had a Foley catheter or sorry, a super pubic catheter in for several months and everything's fine. It is not clogged. There's no calcification on it. Everything's fine. And I've had some patients come back with a huge stone that has grown on the end of that super pubic yeah. catheter. So everyone's different. And I want well, to remind the uh, listeners and, and viewers that Todd, uh, Earlier in, two, I think, 2022, did an excellent treatment of how to manage Foley catheters. You hmm. should definitely watch it. It's on YouTube. It's on Euronurse. And, and I was just going to add, too, that really what we're all getting at without saying it is this idea of individualized care and individualized medicine is really tailoring follow-up and tailoring management to that individual patient. And I think for those of us who, who write orders and, and as, as providers, it's up to us to, to allow um, is to write things and, and prescribe things in a way, particularly relative to devices that allows nurses to make those judgment calls that gives them some flexibility in that environment. And I think, and just one last point relative to that that I'd like to make too is that for folks who are in more rural um, environments that you know coming in for catheter change every four weeks is really is really a chore um, and so we do need to take that into consideration as well which again relates back to that idea of of really following up based on based on individual patients and their needs I'm really encouraged in the direction that the patient that the med medicine is going yeah. right now and that is shared decision-making. Is It is no longer a paternalistic type of a situation where I say you do. It's more of what do you want? What do I recommend? And coming together and deciding on, for instance, when to actually insert a suprapubic catheter versus a chronic urethral catheter. Yeah. And what's safe too, I mean, as far as that discussion too, I think that's great is that patient discussion piece. Well, this has been a great discussion. I think the, it, the, we're certainly not closing the subject. There's probably a lot more we can talk about, um, but we ran out of time. And of course, that's always a big consideration. So I, I will like to thank all of the panelists for your great discussion. It was uh, fantastic. 
And I think we can come back to this one and revisit it. It's going to really be interesting, um, especially with all the comments we got from the, the audience. It was great. But let's put a plug in for next week. Be sure to join us next week. We're going to be um, meeting with a nurse uh, by the name of Sheila Bruni. Uh, and she was working on this thing called the Living History Program. It's really interesting. And they, they came, developed a uh, format where you can ask patients certain questions and you develop this history that they can pass on to their family, you know, for end of life type things. So I think it's going to be a great show. She's a great speaker. I've heard her talk uh, several times. And be sure to save the date because July 29th will be our one year anniversary, our 52nd episode. We're having a raffle. We're giving away a couple of those Euronurse t-shirts. And Suna again is offering a one year membership. So you'll be able to enjoy a one year free membership on Suna's dying. And Glenn Sully is going to join us, the president of Suna for that meeting. So be sure to keep that one in mind. And Hey, remember, We've got something new coming to Euronurse. You want to join us because we'll make that announcement on our one-year anniversary. So, panelists, I would like to thank everybody for your time. It has been a great show, and we'll see everybody next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.